Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. everyone and welcome back to The Ruck from The Times and The Sunday Times. Thank you so much for joining us. Today we're joined from our Wiltshire studios by Stuart Barnes. Hi Stuart, how are you going? Yeah, very well, Will. Thank you very much. Glad to be back off the bench. Yeah, your mandatory rest period is over, starting at 10 for The Ruck this week. Are you ready? Did you demand uh, to come back? Yeah, I, I, I demanded. I don't know who I told. I think I told... I, I think I told my wife that I was fit and ready to go, and she said, "Get out of the house." You're like the Ellis Genge of the Rock, Stuart, just telling everyone I, that you will. You I will. will play. I will be on the Rock this week. You. We'll make sure you get your uh, rest weeks later down the line. Um, Alex, you started early. Alex Lowe, rugby correspondent of the Times. You've been here since August. Come on, how's everything going? Yeah, no, going? no mandatory stand down period. Uh, yeah, good. Although I'm in my home studio as well, unfortunately. Because I got to the train station and they were all cancelled up to London Bridge. So turn tail back home and uh, yeah, in my padded cell, sort of. Um, <laughs> so unfortunately, it's a bit of a Zoom a Zoom pod today, but hopefully it'll sound as good as usual. Yeah, the ruck continues despite uh, the best efforts of the train companies and everything else. Yeah. W- where were you on the weekend, Alex? Sarries, Quinns? I was at, uh, at the Stoop, yeah, for a just a rip-roaring game, um, which... I'm sure we'll go into in a bit more detail. It was impossible to... Sometimes when there's a, a narrative around a game, you know, a lot of talk about who's available and who's not, when you actually get to the rugby, sometimes the rugby just takes over. But it was impossible to escape the conversation about Marcus Smith not being there, but Billy Vunapolo and Owen Farrell being allowed to play because those two were enormous for Saracens as they came from 17-0 down to win um, a, a really entertaining uh, London derby. And... Lots to talk about Saracens and their new style of rugby and, and throwing the ball about on their own 22, which is really not what we expect from no. from that team. No, that, that point you made at the top of that sounds a bit like my game. I was at Worcester, Exeter, and as you say, the rugby did take over, but impossible to ignore what was going on there. Mm-hmm. We, we are aware that we do a lot of Worcester every week, but it is the big news story. So we will try and update you as much as we can on what's happening there. But otherwise, we will explain the latest guidelines for promotion to the Premiership at some point in this in this podcast today. Touch on the bonkers conclusion to the Wallabies All Blacks game in the Rugby Championship. Go through the Red Roses squad announcement for this year's World Cup in New Zealand. Jess Hayden's joining us for that, for the breaking news. But first, let's get stuck into the weekend's results of the Gallagher Premiership and look forward to the fixtures that are coming this weekend too. Right, so into the Gallagher Premiership, round two. Stuart... You were at the wreck. 
a new era for Bath and they get battered again, right? Is that about it? <laughs> Sail top of the league, I suppose we start with that. But what was your view of it? There was a ex-Bath players function um, after the game and a lot of people there, a lot of second teamers and third teamers going back in history and quite a few big names. I can't name him, but I, I saw a former Bath captain, colleague and, and friend of mine, and he said, Barnsley, if you don't write, it was a mind blip, 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 blip from Bath. He said, I'm not going to talk to you for a while. He, what he was intimating was that Bath seemed to be mentally frozen and incapable of playing what's in front of them. And, and they've got a lot of very good individuals, but their, their, their season opener at the wreck was just like last season when, when you just thought, come on, encourage people to look at the possibility, have a broad game plan, but then play outside the box. And, and, and that's not happening. They they looked to me as if they were strangled. Um, and that's a worry because I think Johan van Graam, well, I know that uh, Munster, there was a sense that it was a very structured team. And even Munster, who wouldn't be the barbarians of, of Celtic rugby, got frustrated with, with the tight grip of his coaching. And the last thing Bath need is that again. So that's very worrying. But as with all of these things, we look at the, the, the negative and forget the positive. Sale were bloody good. To, to lose a prop forward after eight minutes and dominate another team in the Premiership away from home was quite something. The only area of Bath supremacy was the scrum. But it's all too easy to look at the negative. And yes, Bath were bad, but sometimes we overlook the good. And Sale, I thought, were excellent. When you consider that they had a prop forward sent off after eight minutes, played with 14 men for 72, they absolutely smashed uh, a fellow premiership team away from home. The scrum was the only area where Bath had any supremacy. And I thought physically uh, and, and mentally, Sale were better. They looked up for the fight. They looked as if they were enjoying it. It was a really impressive performance from the entire team. And a big hats off to the recruitment policy as well. Uh, the two Exeter signings, Johnny Hill was very good um, in the back row. And on the wing, uh, O'Flaherty, is, he's a superb player. He was a wild card uh, thought of mine for the Lions a few years ago because his work rate allies with an amazing change of pace and direction. And, he can do things that very few can do. His his aerial play is excellent. You know, no one talks about him, but he should be in the reckoning, you know, for the England squad by the time the World Cup comes. And then there's uh, George Ford. Sadly, uh, Ford is out until we think December. But if Sale can get him back in December, playing flat on the game line like he used to be all those years ago before he dropped back with England and to some extent Leicester, then they're going to be formidable because he's going to get the likes of Tuolangi coming onto the ball. And with that pacey back three, Sale will take some stopping. They're edgy up front, they're intelligent and they're quick. And I like the look of them. Yeah. I, I think that's a really good summation, Barnsley, because in my season preview, I, I, I wrote that I thought Sale were one of the most interesting teams in the league because they'd lost the, the sort of the, the, the brains of Fafta Clark, but also so much physicality in, in that team. You know, De, De Clerk isn't isn't shy, but they'd lost um Luther Jaeger had, had gone. Um 
and uh, one, one, of, one or two of the South African brothers had gone. They, they'd lost a huge amount from that squad, but I thought, like you, that they had recruited really sensibly. And um, the idea of having, you know, once he's back, Rafi Quirk, George Ford, Manu Turalangi, with with the outside backs that they've got, um, and the, the edge they've got up front still, even without those South Africans, I think puts them in a really strong position. And Alex Anderson, one year. Um, more experience as uh, as the top man in charge, he was interesting on that preseason. I I think they're one of the one of the teams to really follow this year. Ironically, Fafta Clerk is probably one of the biggest names in world rugby, and certainly was in the Premiership. Um, but last year, uh, I thought felt that when he played, he held them back a bit. Um, he's a master of of the box kick, uh, but he's slowed the game down a lot. I think he's got trapped in this South African way of playing. And I don't think it did sail any harm and it wouldn't have helped George Ford um, and the sail backline at all. And Quirk is a very different sort of player. He's a live wire player. And because of that, sail also will look to, to win quicker ball. They'll be more aggressive at the right. They'll change their game in all sorts of myriad ways. And that's because one of the the best scrum halves in the world in the last 10 years has left them. And and someone who's young, quick and different is going to get more game time. And I think that scrum half narrative will be one of the really interesting areas through this season, because like you say, this is the Rafi Quirk can step up as the number one scrum half at sale. Jack Van Portfleet back in June didn't make England, uh, the Leicester squad for the premiership final. He finished the summer tour by being uh, starting, he started a test, the the two tests England won, he was integral in down down under. And from everything that you hear, that this time next year, when when the World Cup is on, it will be Quirk and Van Portfleet um, as as England's two scrum halves. And to to watch those two through this season um, effectively overtake the more experienced players ahead of them will be one of the real storylines, I think, of this campaign. Sorry, could I just also add that? I mean, at Northampton, yeah, Alex Mitchell was so far and away the best scrum half in the Premiership last season. Um, and I wouldn't rule him out. His biggest problem isn't his ability. It's the fact Eddie just seems to have one of his downers on him. But whichever way you look at it, England have three scrum halves who do not have a host of international potential, uh, international experience, but have bags of potential. And that is, Alex, as you say, really exciting. Well, I was going to mention Alex Mitchell there, yeah. For the mall that I've done for the Time subscribers, I had a little look at Alex Mitchell, and his stats are remarkable. I was looking at combining last season with the start of this season, and for pretty much every single metric... He's top for scrum halves if you compare him to Danny Kerr, Harry Randall, Ben Youngs, JVP and Rafi Quirk. So he's got the most tries. He's got the second most assists behind Alex Mitch, um, behind Danny Kerr, but the most try involvement, so assists and tries, of 27 in that time. He carries the most. He makes the most metres. He's beat 70 defenders. And the next best is Danny Kerr, 33. Made... 20 line breaks as opposed to Danny Kerr's 11. Um, he's, he's been playing remarkably. And that kick over the top, I don't know if you guys have seen it, where he sets up Joano Augustus on the right-hand side, chips over the top, regathers and throws an unbelievable 20-metre pass out to the right wing. He's an incredible option as well, but not really in the conversation, not got capped yet at all. 
No, I, I think you know, if if you picked on form England scrum half, Alex Mitchell would be number one. But of course now Van Portfleet has put himself in that position because he got the chance and, and selection. So it's not always who's the best. It, it's how the breaks go your way. And, and good luck to the Leicester lad because the breaks have come his way. Um, but he's going to be in a battle at Leicester as well because because Ben Youngs ain't going to go away without a fight. And if Ben Youngs gets the Leicester first team, that asks all sorts of questions. So, you know, I don't think we want to be looking about England in the World Cup too early, but it is a fan, uh, it's a fantastic subplot. Yeah, absolutely. And the, also the Eastland Midlands derby is going to put those two together this weekend, isn't it? JVP um, yeah. against Alex Mitchell, assuming that JVP makes the team because he hasn't always in every week, has he? Do you think, Barnes, do you think the Mitchell thing, I'm just thinking there that the way he played at the weekend, the way he, as, as Will just detailed that, that he's played for, for some time, it's that kind of chicken and egg thing. He he suits the way Northampton play and you wonder whether Northampton could play like that without him. But I also wonder whether that sometimes counts against him in the mind of, of an England coach who who wants his scrum half to be able to do everything, to, to play it tight, but also to, to play, it, play it quick when necessary. The way that, that Northampton are so wedded to, to their style of play I just wonder if that actually ends up counting against him a little bit in the England, in the minds of the England coaches. Well, I'd say this: uh, he, when he we played his first game for England against the Barbarians, he was the best uh, England player on the pitch till he went off. Uh, so he, he he was able to translate club form in, into playing for a different in a different environment. Um, and the other thing, when you watch his game, his breaks, his darts. What he does, a, a huge amount of his game is around the fringe. And dare I say, if you looked at the stats of Harry Randall, the good ones, it'll come from quick taps and go. And, and people say, wow, he's carried so many metres. But it's the sort of stuff that isn't test match statistics. The The way that um, Mitchell plays is very much about how you play a test match. You know, it, it's how Faf de Klerk was at his very best darting down that five-metre short side. If you watch him hit a blind side and pick the hole and create the space, you know, that's how you score tries in Test Match Rugby. It's not, as Eddie Jones tells us all the time, it's not about barbarian stuff. He's got a box kick. His covering game is exceptional. I mean, you know, and this is in no way denigrating um, the other two youngsters because I think they're very good players. But I, I've seen Rafi Quirk just hasn't had the time uh, to prove that he is as good as Mitchell and Van Portfleet, he's had the opportunity and he took it. Um, but you know, I, I just if if that was the excuse used to keep him out, I would say it's it's a it's a poor one and it doesn't reflect on how he plays for his club. Yeah, no, I was uh, I've not heard anyone say that. It was it was more just a thought that, that occurred to me as um, as I think about how integral he is to the way that the Northampton play and. And this narrative will be fascinating. Last World Cup, England took two scrum halves out to Japan. They'll only take two to France. Mm. Um, so you've got, there's a real ding-dong battle there between those three, plus Randall, plus Youngs, um, to, to try and win those spots. Alex, we've had a lot of talk about styles of play over the, the first couple of weeks. And that was really interesting at Saracens, wasn't it? Where they very obviously tried to move the ball. It shot themselves in the foot a couple of times with a couple of... Quinn's tries off the back of their mistakes, but they eventually got there and the squeeze came on at the end, didn't it? But what did mm. you see of 
their sort of new form offloading game, almost forcing passes when they didn't need to sometimes. I thought towards the end of last season, we spoke about it a lot on, on the ruck, there were flashes of play that, that hinted towards Saracens evolving. It was obviously wasn't that kind of a final, but we had Owen Farrell making breaks and, and offloading out the back of tackles and things which which we hadn't seen from from him in, in some time. And that has really been built on over over the summer. And it's now it was a very deliberate strategy and they were running it from from deep and you know at the point you think in they're taking on Quinn's at, at their own game here and and it allowed and Quinn's pounced a little bit and, and took advantage. This was Saracen's first game, right? And they fell 17-0 down because Quinn's took advantage and, and Alex Dombrand in particular, as, as Barnsley actually wrote about, was was outstanding. And he was he was their real energy. Their scrum was on top. And at 17-0 up after the first quarter, you've learned not to think the Saracens are done for. You wondered about this style, this, this style of play and whether whether they'd stick to it. And and actually, as the game wore on, as, as Barnsley wrote, Don Brown went off. Vunapola became more and more influential. They were going forward, but they were keeping the ball out of um, out of contact. They scored two tries before half time, just big breaks from heavy ball carries, but keeping the ball alive, moving the moving the point of contact, just just really sharp and well executed when they started to get into their groove. And then, yeah, as they came back, they hit the lead after about an hour, and then began to apply the, the Saracen squeeze, um, and ended up winning a, a, a thumping game. Um, and uh, listen, afterwards, Mark McCall, being Mark McCall, was like, "No, there's no real great new style of rugby. We've just decided to to try and attack a bit more, which is which is quite a significant shift for, from the way they play because a lot of the positions that they would have kicked in, they were passing in." Yeah, I'm really interested because their next fixture is Gloucester, who had a bit of a sort of crisis of confidence in that Wasps game, but then came back in the mall and the scrum that served them so well last year came to the fore so it's going to be interesting to see whether Saris go again on that attacking style or try and because usually in years gone by they've managed to get the better of Gloucester by beating them in that way haven't they there were those that semi-final where it's Farrell against Cipriani and everyone got very excited in about 2018-19 and Saris just took them to the cleaners didn't they using that pressure squeeze kick everything so it'd be interesting against a Gloucester team who are building quite a formidable pack Stuart whether Sarri's actually double down on this new attacking style or go back to what we're used to from them yeah and, and, and I'm pleased to say that I am heading to uh, Saracens for the game and looking forward to it I was on holiday a couple of weeks ago and the fixtures came out from the Sunday times and I said oh I like the look of Saracens Harlequins and then being on holiday I realised that of course no all the big guns were not playing, so I'll give that one a miss and go and watch Bath. So Alex takes great opportunity, moves in for the best game and leaves me with that load of nonsense. So this time, <laughs> this time, I think Steve's back for the East Midlands derby, which we've outlined why that's going to be so attractive. And I, I'm going to Saracens and I'm going to stick to my guns and stay there. Um, Saracens. They do evolve, but they evolve snow-like in, in rugby terms. I can remember them 10, 12 years ago. They were the they were more South African than South Africa in their box kick and chase game. Uh, and the problem was in Europe, they were getting battered at, at breakdown, so they couldn't turn uh, position in, in, into gain line dominance. 
and they had to change and they did change a little bit and what we've got to remember is for donkey's years saracens uh, have, have scored a lot of outstanding tries uh when they want to use their backs they use them very well uh they just play uh, a more conservative game in different higher parts of the field than most and what we saw against Harlequins early on was them playing um, from deeper parts of the field. And th that's what interested me because they got caught out there and they did evolve. And, and I think when uh, Vunipola produced that little roll part with his right hand uh, on the 22 of Harlequins, that's when you saw right Harlequin, uh, Saracens are now beginning to motor into the Saracens way. And, it was different and it was a, a little bit quicker, but, you know, because we pigeonhole them, sometimes we forget that they do this a lot. I mean, how many times have we seen Elliot Daly pick those running lines that he did quite wonderfully, by the way, for the try for Malins at the weekend? He's been doing it a long time. And, and so I, I expect Saracens to be formidable again. And I expect them to be a little bit more ambitious than they might have been, but it won't be too much because that's the McCall way. You just gradually, what's the the, 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 the trendy word of the moment is incrementally, isn't it? <laughs> they incrementally uh, improve. Gloucester, of course, a complete opposite. So much of last season, they ran willy-nilly and you thought all these really brilliant players, um, but they're just not getting it right in terms of their decision-making. And I felt when I watched that first game uh, of the season, I, I was almost horrified with how much they had turned into a, a kick and chase team. And they did uh, expand a little bit as the game went on, but there's no doubt at all, you know, uh, Chapman was standing last season. Chapman was the scrum half who came on to inject pace. Now, uh, watching him this season, he kicks brilliantly. Uh, the Gloucester kick and chase game was superb. So are we going to see Saracens playing like Gloucester used to play and Gloucester playing like Saracens uh, once played? Fascinating. Well, I was going to say that it's a bit of a left turn, but Gloucester gives us a little segue into Worcester because we're recording this on Tuesday and Worcester are meant to be going to Gloucester in the Premiership Rugby Cup on Wednesday, but as we know, uncertainty abounds about Worcester and their situation. Just to try and give everyone a bit of an update before we get into the game I was at, Worcester-Exeter on Sunday, um, it seems like at the moment, officially, that game in the Premiership Rugby Cup is on. It, on Tuesday, we're expecting some update from the ownership at uh, Worcester, but... I think we're at the point now where seeing is believing with the certain things that they've been coming out with. They give themselves lots of deadlines that they're not hitting at the moment. So we'll see whether they can update us on the buyers, the sale of the club, uh, the money coming in. Because at the moment, Worcester literally don't have petrol to put in a car to get them down the M5. So at the moment, that game is under threat, but officially on. And I was contacting people at Gloucester earlier to check their side of it to see whether they think they're coming in. Lance Bradley, the CEO, sent us a message that he wanted to get out there and just saying, look, he's he's spoken to the Worcester CEO, Peter Kelly, this morning on Tuesday and has been assured that they are fielding a team. Um, they've spoken to the people on the playing side who also assure us they've got a team to field, he said. So as far as we're concerned, the game's definitely going ahead. But Alex, we've been trying to follow this for almost a month now and there's a big difference between what people can say on the record... Um, and what is happening and what they can say off the record, I suppose. And it's it's trying to navigate that in, in our copy and on podcasts and stuff like that. 
it's it's been yeah. a can of worms really hasn't it? it 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 has and i just i think we've got to the point and it it came a couple of weeks ago probably where we no longer as journalists and certainly the employees of the club no longer believe what is what is said to us by you know, on the record in official club statements because they have been disproven enough times um that it, we're now in we'll believe it when we see it territory there've been there've been promises made dating back a month if not longer uh both publicly and privately to people that that have not that have not been fulfilled what what is what comes out publicly is is no longer trusted because it's it's been proven to be false so often and so that that is that makes reporting it tricky because there are lots of things that we hear that we can't write and we can't talk about on the pod because you you'd legally ethically journalistically you have to stand them up and getting the evidence and getting the hard proof is difficult. And there's a lot that I'm sure lots of us would like to write and talk about. And maybe hopefully one day we'll, we'll be able to. What we can say, and I was there at Six Ways on Sunday, was firstly, the perception at the club from talking to people around the ground and stuff beforehand was that was it. That was the swan song. They're not going to do that again. People volunteering, not being paid guard of honour of the non-rugby playing staff before the game that they did for the women's game on the Saturday as well, it felt like an ending it, it felt like a conclusion, it didn't feel like a sort of, I don't know valedictory tour of we're here and we're here to stay, it felt like if this is going to be the last time, let's do it properly and it was a really odd setting because because the fact that the club were only allowed a safety certificate for one less than 5,000 fans they were all in, in the stand that we sit in as the journalists, we're on the opposite side to where that stand was. So the atmosphere was brilliant, but it was all sort of over there and on the other side. Um, so it's a really weird, eerie setting. And I found it tough because you want to kind of say, good on Worcester for playing, celebrate the, the good people at the club who've put this game on work through the night, had endless meetings, done it for no money at all, got the bins taken out, got the game on, got the screens working, got... BT cameras in there, got the, everything working despite having no Microsoft Word, no Wi-Fi, nothing like that. But also you've got this other side of like the shame that we've got to this point. And that's, I tried to write about that on um, Monday's Times about how the hell have we got to this point? It beggars belief that this has been allowed to happen, that we've just sort of drifted into this scenario where week to week now we're unsure whether Worcester are able to fulfil fixtures. We mentioned it at the top of the podcast, but some little bit of news that dropped that's kind of relevant to this Worcester situation um, just before the weekend, and it's to do with minimum standards criteria, that very exciting thing that we get um, so heated about, whether teams can come up into the Premiership. And they've changed the rules, haven't they, Alex, essentially, adapted them slightly, because previously they didn't allow Ealing Trailfinders or Doncaster Knights to, to come up because they said they didn't have the capacity of... 10,001 fans but what they've said now is that they can start with 5,000 in year one and then they have to expand to 10,000 in year two and I suppose the ironic point there was that Worcester were capped at 5,000 weren't they as a as a fully fledged premiership team but that's that's a significant change or do we feel like with all that's going on with this Worcester situation they're going to be so reticent to allow another team up I was really pleased. Uh, the capacity thing is significant. Uh, the Premier League many years ago was saying, "Look, we have certain standards, but if you come up from your league into the into the big with join the big boys, 
we give you a certain amount of time to get your facilities right. And you you can't make a quantum leap from a pond into the Pacific Ocean just like that. So I think saying that if you've got 5,000, then you have a certain amount of time to get it to 10 is exactly the right way to go. And the other thing, I think the RFU uh, and PRL doesn't have a leg to stand on here because it's all well and good talking about you've got to have 10,001. But we, we know that uh, the two northern sides, Newcastle and Sale, were struggling to get 5,000. And, you know, having 10,001 capacity means absolutely nothing if you can only half fill it. It looks terrible. But also, it's a good one because it does allow uh, a smaller organisation time uh, to prove that they can survive in the premiership, not on the pit field, but off it. Yeah, it, it does. It does provide that time. But the one thing that we talk about sustainability of of clubs in the Premiership, and and I think there's a my my perspective on it is that there's a there's there's some muddled thinking around it. You know, at the moment, the Premiership tell us that they do want to bring back promotion and relegation in its in a form once this moratorium is lifted, but it will be with a a playoff game between the winners of the Championship and the the bottom team in. In the Premiership, so they, we're told that that the RFU and and the clubs want promotion and relegation, which is earned on the field, but then they want to apply effectively a franchise model onto the winners to to prove whether they can s- survive in the Premiership with everything that's around off the field. You know, do you have the business plan? Do you have the attendance? Can you can you be a sustainable club in the Premiership? And I just think they need to choose one or the other. Because the other thing here is Ealing will be will be given a year. They have to have 5,000 when they go up. And then and then by the following year, they'll need 10,000, by which time they could be relegated again. That's a trap. If you if you double the attendance in one year, then, then you're asking for something close to the impossible. Football didn't do that. They said there's a certain amount of time. When you were saying that, I was thinking initially, you know, in France, I've written endlessly about the importance of promotion and relegation and the integrity of competition between Pro Deux and the top 14. But it should be noted that the business model is vital in France. The academies, the stadium, the training facilities, uh, health and safety, the medical side. France is far more sophisticated there. And, and, and I think sometimes that's something we don't look at when we look at perhaps teams outside the premiership yeah i i think we're at a point in the premiership and i've been was talking to some owners and, and various execs over the last week or so about about the state of play and we talked about it with mark evans last week we're at a point in the premiership where there's a there is a, an acceptance across the league that the system the structure is broken I and mean, it's taken everyone 20 plus years to recognize that the model isn't working there's an acceptance it's not working. There's a con- there are conversations happening about what the optimum size of the league is. Do you drop it down to 10? Do you actually make it 16 but have two divisions or two conferences? Lots of ideas are, are being floated around, but it's it all comes back to how do you create a sustainable model? I spoke to one club owner who I, I quoted in my piece today in the paper, who's like, we can't be moving at the pace of the slowest team the weakest teams don't have a place in the league if they're if they're not sustainable i spoke to other club owners 
who said, you know, who acknowledged that the model's wrong, that we're overpaying on players, player salaries. We we need to boost the commercial side and we'll stick in there long enough. The commercials will catch up with the, the salaries and then we'll be okay. So there are two completely polar views here on, on, on the way forward. There are different views on the model, but how to make it sustainable. And as we discussed about, about the executive power last week, how do you ever get anywhere with 13 clubs who have all got different different models and different pressures and different business plans and different catchment areas with, with, with different population types living in them. It's at a point where I think there's a general acceptance that, that the, the, the league needs to take a step change to, towards a new future, but no one yet can work out what that should look like. And that piece of work is enormous. So I think that this, just bringing it back to the Ealing promotion thing, they've done that because the current, rules are that there will be a team promoted. If that actually is where we are in 10 years' time, uh, is a different question entirely because I really think that franchise thing or ring fence or however you want to describe it is going to end up taking over because it's the only way of being sustainable and growing the league outside of the catchment areas of the current club. So, you know, Leicester are selling 25,000 a week. Bristol are selling 25,000 tickets a week. Great sale are selling as, as we said earlier what five five six thousand, but if you want if you want to grow interest in the league you've got you know East Anglia no no Premiership teams Kent Sussex Hampshire Ooh. no 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 Premiership teams, but but enormous rugby populations enormous rugby communities in those those parts of the country. So if if you're approaching it from a league perspective, that's where this NFL comparison comes in to grow the league you need to engage rugby fans who don't have a premiership team on their doorstep and then that that's i'm not that's where this conversation will go how do we do that how do we engage all these rugby communities into the premiership it's got to be a longer term philosophy and and just closing the gate doesn't work um i think the rfu have got to look at a way of coming up with your 16 or maybe even 20 two leagues and that would mean three or four premier premiership teams would be playing in the second league, which lifts the other leagues. I, I when I was in Cornwall, I, I was chatting to a, a couple of Cornish Pirates fans and players, and it was the start of the season. Bath should have been relegated last season. Let's not pull any punches. It could have been first game up in another world, the Pirates against Bath. I said, how would that have been? He said, all of Cornwall would have wanted to be at this game. Now, to do that, for the game to develop, for the extra 25% of supporters to come, it has to be fresh blood. We we, we know that it's not coming from the, the, the current setup. It will mean vision is required. It will look as if the Premiership elite will have to give more to more clubs. But in the long term, if you want a sustained club game that isn't just flirting around off the back of the test arena, that's what's got to happen, I think. Just a quick note on the championship. I saw that Caldy, their first game up in the championship, they beat Richmond. So that was a nice result for them. But yeah, we better round off that chat now. But if you want to read more about this whole issue of what the hell happens with the Premiership from here... Alex has written a big long piece for the Times, so go and look for that um, on social media or on the Times Times app. But next, we're going to talk to Jess Hayden, 
because we've got some breaking news. Simon Middleton's England squad is out for the World Cup. The Red Roses are off to New Zealand, but who is going? Find out from Jess Hayden after this. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Support comes from ServiceNow, the AI platform for business transformation. You've heard the hype around AI. The truth is, AI is only as powerful as the platform it's built into. ServiceNow is the platform that puts AI to work for people across your business, removing friction and frustration for your employees, supercharging productivity for your developers, providing intelligent tools for your service agents to make customers happier, all built into a single platform you can use right now. That's why the world works with ServiceNow. Visit servicenow.com slash AI for people to learn more. Right, so now on the ruck, we've got some breaking news. The England women's team, the Red Roses, have announced their squad for the upcoming Rugby World Cup. And Jess Hayden's here with us. She often gives us updates on the Allens Premier 15s and everything to do with the women's game. And she's here to tell us who's in and who's out of the squad. So take it away, Jess. What are the big stories from today? So the headline is that Natasha Hunt, the scrum half known as Mo, has missed out. She is a World Cup winner. She's one of the, the players who's got a lot of experience in the squad. And Simon Middleton, the head coach, has instead opted for some younger players, so Leanne Infante, Claudia McDonald and Lucy Packer as his scrum halves to take to New Zealand. Claudia McDonald is the kind of a more of a diverse player. She can play at wing and as she did against the USA in the warm-up matches. So I think that what Middleton has done is kind of picked a player who can fill different shirts on the pitch instead of taking Mo, who's much more of a um, out-and-out scrum half. The other headline that England fans will be pleased to hear is that Abby Dow, the winger, is back in the squad. Abby broke her leg lengthways in the Six Nations. So she actually twisted her leg so badly that it, it broke lengthways. And she hasn't played since the Six Nations match against Wales. She's all summer, she's been going through physio and rehab and operation. She's had screws put into her leg and then removed from her leg to get her to, to where she is. She's going to New Zealand and Simon Middleton is clearly confident enough that despite not having the game time over the summer, she's in a strong enough position to, to play in this World Cup. So we don't know whether she'll start against Fiji, which is the opening game on the 8th of October, or whether Simon is keeping her for the, the later stages of the, of the tournament. We don't know that yet, but fans will be particularly pleased to, to hear about her. Yeah, just on the Natasha Hunt, Mo Hunt call, that's a big one, isn't it, for a really experienced World Cup winning scrum half not to be on the plane? Yes, it's a huge decision. And it shocked me because Lucy Packer, who's a very young scrum half, I think she's only got a few caps to, to her name so far. Um, she's got five caps to her name. She's 
she's a, a slower player. Mo, one of her biggest strengths is that she plays with tempo and she's really quick with the ball after a ruck or a breakdown. And that's something that we saw Wales really struggle with in the warm-up matches. And we know the USA struggled with it as well. Teams tend to struggle when England want to play fast. And Natasha Hunt, for me, is the player who's who's best at just playing with tempo, playing a fast ball. I think that it's a it's a decision that I, I personally am very shocked by. I, I don't necessarily agree with it, but um, yeah, he, he's definitely gone for the younger up and coming scrum halves. And I think another thing to maybe mention here is that Mo took some time out for her mental health last year and took a time took time out away from the England squad. Still played for Gloucester, Hartbury, but took some time out. And I think that maybe that that time away, whilst it was absolutely the right idea for her mentally. Maybe it's that time away from the squad while other players kind of gave room for other players to come through and they've clearly impressed Simon enough to to drop a World Cup winner from his squad. Uh, that injury that Abby had is, was horrific. And for her to be named in this squad just strikes me as, as a remarkable testament to her, I guess, determination, um, physical recovery, because it's not that long for, for an injury of, of that nature, but but also her mental strength, because to to come back from that injury and go straight into a World Cup, feeling confident and and trusting your body again, um, and and to have done enough to convince Simon Milton that that she was ready for selection is is a pretty remarkable feat, isn't it? It's a huge feat. I mean, that's only maybe five months ago that she broke her leg, and when when we saw Emily Starrett, she broke her leg at the start of last season, and she only she I think broke her leg in September and came back in in April. This is a much shorter time frame for for Abby to come back, but I know that she's been seeing really good surgeons to try and speed up her recovery. So she had screws removed from her leg to really help speed up that return to play but yeah it, it shows that Simon Middleton clearly trusts her and, and knows what a, a strong asset she is in the squad she's she's one of those players you know how England play who will just break through and score tries and it's the easiest tries that England score but Abby Dow gets so many of them and I think he's just aware that that England need that speed it'll be interesting to see if she comes back in the the, the pool stages I think because England are the number one team in the world the, the pool C is going to be a pretty easy pool for them. I, I wonder whether they're going to kind of have a gradual return to play for her. Um, so I would imagine to see her maybe come on as a substitute during the pool stages and then maybe be saved for the, the knockout fixtures. Yeah, so just on those pool games for England when they get there in October, November, um, France, Fiji and South Africa are in their in their pool. France, obviously, the marquee game in that. But one thing I wanted mm-hmm. to ask you about, Jess, is something that's going around social media and... I don't know, something that perhaps might not have happened in the men's game of lots of late kickoffs um for fans in Europe because the game the tournament's in New Zealand, which is difficult, but is that a problem for the women's game? I think everyone wants to see the uptick like the women's football team got in the Euros, winning that European championship amazingly in the summer and riding the wave of that. Is that gonna be more difficult when lots of the games are at three AM and people are gonna have to get up and try and watch them and it's not quite that appointment to view on ITV when the games are going to be on. You're absolutely right. I think we all hope that women's rugby would jump on the bandwagon really and, and ride that wave of the, the women's football and, and capture some of those fans who might not have been interested in women's sport before but but suddenly are because of the success of the Euros. But you're right. I mean, the only 
sociable hour of a kickoff is 8 a.m which is against France the others are at three four between three and five a.m in the morning and it's only going to be the very dedicated fans who wake up at that time to watch it so really we're not going to be engaging new audiences that's my personal opinion um, ITV have said that they will do some kind of recap show or something around the around the tournament and you'll be able to watch on iPlayer as well. So there, there, they are those, there are those options. But yeah, it's going to be very difficult to engage new fans. But when I've spoken about this on, on Twitter, you know, Southern Hemisphere people have said, yeah, but what about us? Mm. We, the, when it's in the Northern Hemisphere, we can't watch it. But um, yeah, certainly for for British uh, British fans, this is going to be a, a, a tough a tough tournament to follow. I guess I mean, when I was over in Dublin, when England were confirmed as hosts of the 2025 World Cup and talked to Sally Horrocks from World Rugby there. And our whole conversation was about tapping into the the, the uptick of, of the women's Euros football. So I, I guess the 25 World Cup is is the opportunity that that rugby in this part of the world and, and certainly in England has to to try and, and piggyback the um the sort of the surge in interest in in women's sport that that we all saw from the Euros in the summer. Yeah, we know that the aim for the 25 World Cup is to fill Twickenham for the final. Um, so I think that's a really good aim to have. And there's been talk with the with the Six Nations of perhaps having one of the women's Six Nations fixtures next year in Twickenham to see just how, how much the stadium can be filled currently. And I think that will be a really good test of where we are in terms of fan bases. We're getting, I mean, Wales had 11,000 fans on a Wednesday night. We know that England versus Wales, I should say, 11,000 fans on a Wednesday night. We know the fan bases are growing, but yeah, for me, 25 is the tournament to look forward to. More players will be professional than ever before. Um, they'll have been able to, to, to get a grasp of professionalism and I think it'll be a fairer tournament and definitely easier to follow for fans. Jess I wanted to ask you too now that we know that the women that are going to that World Cup just the expectation on them is enormous isn't it really I mean 25 test matches they've won in a row which is no one's done in either men or women's rugby union internationally they're expected to win the World Cup it's not like oh they should win the World Cup it's that they absolutely should win the World Cup and if they don't it's a failure really isn't it so how do you think these women are going to cope with that expectation does it almost help that it's over on the other side of the world that they might not have that kind of pressure if it was at home I asked Sarah Hunter, the captain, that after the Wales match and said, you know, you're going with a huge target on your back, 25 wins in a row, number one team in the world, but you haven't won the World Cup. And, um, you know, they're, they're, they're trying to get the World Cup back really off New Zealand. Yeah, 2014 was that first one, wasn't it? Yeah. 2014, they they won their second World Cup. Mm. 2017, they they lost um, to to New Zealand. I think um, what, what Simon Middleton said was is that they can't be the best team in the world until they've won the World Cup, and that's what's motivating them. Is they don't see themselves as the undisputed heavyweights in the world because they haven't got the World Cup. Personally, I think that that they're well aware that they are meant to win this, and if they don't win this, it will be a huge huge upset. Um, but yeah, Sarah Hunter said that one of the things that's really helping is having a psychologist in the team. So they brought in a psychologist, Helen Davis, and she's been helping the team cope with that pressure around selection and also going into the, the World Cup and helping them understand that, yes, they've got they might have a big target on their backs, but how to kind of 
cope with that and and still perform as well as they should and really as we've seen over the summer in the Six Nations and even the autumns last year it's going to take an incredibly strong team to beat England and I don't think that team exists anywhere in the world at the moment. Mm. Well you can cut you can follow all of the coverage of the Women's World Cup in the Times but also Jess you've been spending some time behind the scenes haven't you tell us about that you've gone going around with a TV camera crew. <laughs> yes that's right so there's an ITV documentary that's coming out just before the start of the World Cup. It's been following the Red Roses over the summer as they prepare for the World Cup. And it's been fascinating to see behind the scenes. The access that the camera crew has had has been excellent. And I, I describe it as, if you think about Drive to Survive, but about women's rugby, it's it's been brilliant. It's really interesting. I've just finished watching the final cut of the the first episode. And I've got the second episode to watch later today, and it's it's fascinating. It's really good, and I'm sure it will really engage fans. And I hope engage them enough that they might wake up at three in the morning to watch some women's rugby. Perfect. Well, thanks so much to Jess there, and wishing the Red Roses all the best. They've now got their squad. So it's all happening pretty soon. Next on The Ruck, we're going to talk about the controversial ends to Wallabies All Blacks, which I think Stuart Barnes might have an opinion on. And then God or Goddess of the Week to finish off. Right, so it was a few days ago now, but Australia, New Zealand, last Thursday, in The Times reported Stuart Barnes scandaled down under. Oh, what well, happened there, Bunty? Matthew Ronell, well, Bernard Foley. I think that's a headline, and it wasn't my headline. What happened? We got confused. Matthew Ronell, a very good referee, in my opinion, the French referee, told Bernard Foley that he better hurry up and clear his penalty kick to touch because he felt there was a bit of time wasting with a minute and thirty-five seconds to go, and Australia leading in Melbourne against the All Blacks. Foley dithered. Foley then did what any fly half would do. He, he looked to his forwards to say, right, get ready to chase it. He took a pause. He took a breath because it's a minute and a half out and they're a couple of points up against the All Blacks. And in that pause to set himself to make sure he doesn't do something stupid with the kick, Raynell blew his whistle to say, I've given you enough time. Now he hadn't because he, he had had a few words with him, but the clock since time came on, nine seconds elapsed and and... I can explain. I, I hate ex-players who say, "Oh, if you haven't played the game, you won't understand it." But I just shut my eyes and put myself in a position under pressure. Clearance kick. You just don't want to make a mess of it. You do pause. It's like when you run out for a game in the first kickoff. You don't just kick the ball. You, you take a, a breather, set yourself because of the adrenaline. The Foley does this. He it's turned over, and a penalty becomes a scrum, and New Zealand go and win the game. And God knows Australia need everything going their way to grow their game of rugby union or even to survive it in Australia. And, and they, they end up with a uh, brilliant Will Jordan drawing two men and Geordie Barrett scores in the corner. Why was I upset? I was upset because rugby cannot be uh, officiated purely according to the laws of the game. It's too convoluted. If you just try and be accurate with the laws, you will blow the whistle for 80 minutes and the crowd and the TV viewers will have a terrible case of tinnitus. So what you have to do is understand the basic laws of the game and then just empathise. 
if Mattia Reynal all day had been saying, come on, lads, hurry up. If World Rugby had launched a campaign against time wasting, then I would have said, what a heroic decision. I'm not saying it was a wrong decision technically, but I'm saying that the entire history of the game, the entire 79 and a half minutes of that match, 78 and a half minutes, we hadn't seen that. And to, to make that, massive decision when he did and where he did uh, staggered me. I, I still think Reynolds a good ref. I see people online saying he should be dumped. It's not the case. Everyone makes errors, but his was a very big one, I fear. Two points I want to make. I um, was watching it like lots of people on uh, Thursday morning and was Googling laws of the game. And, and I've just got it up here. The PDF of World Rugby's laws of the game. Do you want to guess how many pages long it is, Alex? Wow, I've got the app on my phone and it's enormous. It takes up a lot of space on my phone. Um, how many pages? 150. Oh, very close. 156. 156 pages of laws of the game. So maybe there's a problem in that. Second point, um, I've completely forgotten. Well, also, what do you remember? I'll say, I came a couple of years ago, Owen Farrell was getting booed when he was taking penalty kicks at Murrayfield. And there was a big stink about that it was, you know, it was disrespectful. And that actually, the reason he was getting jeered was because of how long he was taking. Mm. So on the back of it, I went and went through all of his penalty kicks in that year's Six Nations, penalty kicks to goal, for which he's allowed a minute from the moment that the team indicates they're going for the posts. Every single one, bar a little chip shot from under the posts, took him longer than a minute. And he wasn't alone. Johnny Sexton was even slower. I went back to look at the two because obviously as as you say if you're going to if you're going to referee everything to the to the nth degree then you start comparing it to other incidents in the same game 8 minutes before 7 minutes before this incident Richie Mwanga is kicking his second penalty kick to goal it takes him 70 seconds not 60 seconds now he was afforded 10 seconds too long to take that kick if you if you take that was longer than Bernard Foley was given from when play came back on to clear to touch. Had he cleared for, to touch, which, as Barnsley said, he would. there's no way he's missing touch there. He's being conservative. He's getting it out. You then have the slow march up to the line-out, which is another time-wasting area. There are There's loads of areas in the, in the game where the, the game could easily be sped up. Penalty kicks to goal, line-outs. Scrums is a different conversation, but... I didn't think that what Bernafoli did was as egregious as many other incidents that you see in any game of rugby. I'm going to make two very short points before we go to Goddess. Or... Will you remember both of them this time? Yeah, I'm going to remember both. I'm going to remember both. <laughs> First one is, here's a solution. Shot clock, live in the stadium for all these penalties, kicks to touch, everything else. A countdown, people can get excited about it. A bit like we see in cricket or whatever. Let's have 10, 9, 8, 7, 6 for someone kicking a goal. Adds a bit of pressure to the kicker. Lovely stuff. Second one, a media point. Amazing that we have seen um, the conversations between Nick White and Matthew Renault. They've gone around social media. I'm pretty sure they would have come from Stan Sports in Australia. Um, we get the referees mic'd up a lot already. But that conversation was really revealing. And actually, Renault came out quite well from it. More of that, please. But right, we'll finish off now. God or goddess of the week time. I've got mine locked away. Who's going to go first from you guys? Alex, Stuart, who wants to go for it? I'm, I'm, I'm happy to go first. Um, I'd be surprised if, if there's not agreement on this. I'm going to 
on field, I'm going to make. I didn't get a chance to talk about it earlier. Owen Farrell is is much maligned, um, but when he's playing like he played at the Stoop, where he is, he is abrasive. He was like Lennox and Yanru, the, the the young centre opposite him, was given a real lesson in what it's going to take him to make it in the Premiership. Farrell was flinty in his face, but also silky when when he had the ball in hand, and then an intelligent. At, at the right moments as well. I, it was a really, I really enjoyed watching him play. And on another week, uh, I'd have probably named him, even though Billy was man of the match. Um, but I have to pick Eddie Butler. I have to pick Eddie Butler. And I didn't know him anywhere close, uh, as closely as Barnsley will have done or, or, or Stephen Jones, who wrote a lovely piece. There've been many lovely pieces written about Eddie. Um, he was always warm and welcoming when I was a a young uh, journalist. And you kind of forget that he had his enormous rugby career where he achieved so much on the field because he was a master of what he was doing off the field. My one little story that, that um, I reflected on and actually dug out the piece that I wrote <laughs> from, from the day was the 2009 Lions tour. Uh, a few of us, I think it was Owen Slot actually. I was at the Press Association at the time, so Slotty for the Times me, Eddie Butler for The Observer and Sarah Mockford from Rugby World were invited to go into Drakenstein Prison, which was the prison where, uh, from where Nelson Mandela made his final walk to freedom. And we went in uh, for a, a day to basically to do our level one coaching badge. It was a coaching, rugby coaching course with inmates of the prison, with with murderers, with with kids who'd been caught up in gangs who were trying to find something that they could do to, to, to bring with them when they, when they were released. And we had an extraordinary day in this prison, um, playing rugby, coaching rugby, learning how to, how to coach rugby with, with kids who had just joined the, the prison rugby team. Um, we spoke to a kid called Michael who had turned his life around and was being held up as the, um, the the example of of what of what you, what is possible, and and rugby had played a big part in in that, and and Eddie and I had a well, we all had a great day, and from that from that day, we always called each other coach. Every time we saw each other, it's like All right, coach, hello, coach, and it was it was a lovely thing because it just it had a legacy to it. So you know, and that was that was over ten years ago, it was, you know, two thousand and nine, and and from then on, we always called each other coach, and um. Just a lovely guy. So uh, I'm sure Barnsley's got a, got, you know, got many more memories than I than I have. But um, I couldn't nominate anyone else but Eddie. Yeah, well said, Alex. Um, a lovely man gone too soon. Um, Barnsley, a tribute to Eddie as well, or what else are we having for your God of the Week? I went to my first Hong Kong Sevens age. I don't know, eighteen, nineteen, twenty, but young and wild. And Eddie was one of our forwards for the Barbarians, and he got me back to Europe in one piece. That in itself was a, a huge achievement. <laughs> um, Eddie's a generous, genuine, uh, and perceptive man. I was so upset uh, at Bath Saturday when, before the game, we had the uh, minute silence, obviously for, for, for the for the Queen, but I felt that what Bath should have done and what every club should have done is double it with with Eddie Butler because Eddie Butler um, was of our family. He was of the rugby family. He was a captain of Wales. He was a a poetic broadcaster. 
and and a decent bloke. I I have many many other stories about Eddie, but they're on tour. Um, lovely guy, uh, and and I thought very well said by Alex as well. So it has to be Eddie. But as as an aside, can I mention Malcolm Marks because? If Eddie had been commentating, he'd have probably said it. Malcolm Marks lasts 80 minutes, scores a wonderful try in the end of the test match against Argentina. Yet we've been told for 20 years that the game is now so fast, so physical, so ferocious that nobody can last 80 minutes. Malcolm Marks has spent years uh, as part of the, the bomb squad. And I've always felt for him coming off the bench for the last 35, sometimes 40 minutes. He's the best hooker in the world. He can go 80 minutes. The myth of coaches saying they know when a player is ready to go has been exploded by this man. So Malcolm Marks on the field, but of course it has to be Eddie Butler, God of the Week. Yeah, absolutely. Must be Eddie, but my sort of honourable mention, uh, having been there on Sunday, must go to the players and, and staff at Worcester Warriors for... Um, I met um, Matt, who was rattling a bucket. He works for the Worcester Warriors Foundation, usually raising money for amazing causes like blind rugby and things like that. And he was saying how he got into it and had a chat with him by the gates. But this time he was rattling to top up the staff pay, which is an extraordinary situation. But Sue from Accounts, who's been trying to pay people manually, you've got got people in the ticket office who had to rent out, I think, a council office in the week so they could get things done You've got um, Paul Bolton and Luke Broadley and Steve Diamond and all these people at the club who are working largely without or without full pay. Um, they managed to get a game on. It's a shameful situation for the league, but all power to the, the Worcester staff and players. Well well done to them. But yes, as you said, Alex, and as you said, Stuart, our God of the Week must be the late Eddie Butler. Right, that has been it for another edition of The Ruck from The Times and The Sunday Times. Thank you so much to Alex Lowe. Thanks very much, mate. You're and welcome. Thanks, Stuart Barnes as well. Cheers. Where are you going to go on the weekend, you said, Stuart? Saris? Yeah, I'm, I'm on my way to Saracens, Gloucester. Um, obviously, I'm feeling a bit stiff now after my first performance of the season today. <laughs> Perfect. Ice bath for you, I'll recover. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> right, well, that has been The Ruck. Thank you so much for listening. Subscribe, like, tell your friends, and we'll have more next week on The Ruck. Thanks so much for listening, and goodbye. This episode was edited and produced by the great Alfie Reynolds. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. 
So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com.